Last year at this time, I had taken a class on Unitarian Universalist history, and we had to write a paper on a congregation, and so I chose this one. And digging through the dusty books up in the dust-filled archive with the dusty door, did I mention it was dusty? Uh, <laughs> I found an amazing story that I want to share with you today, so I hope you like history. So some background first, though. The Unitarian Universalist Organization, Association, the organization to which our church belongs, is an association made due to the merger of two different churches. The Unitarians, known then as the American Unitarian Association, had a long history both here in Haverhill and in the United States. The Unitarians were the direct descendants of the Puritans. This is why our church can trace its history back all the way to 1645. It is the Unitarians because those who stayed in the church believed in only one God. They didn't believe in the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They felt that Jesus was not God, but a prophet who was truly inspired. They tended to be wealthier, and they tended to be educated. Some Unitarians that you probably know are Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and Theodore Parker. The Universalists, the other half of our church, formerly the Universalist Church of America, they gained a lot of momentum in the rural parts of New England. With the Industrial Revolution, Universalism also crept into the mills. Universalism's central theme was that no person was beyond God's love, that all would be brought to him in salvation. There was no hell. Famous Universalists were people like John Murray, who we've named this room after. So both churches by the 1940s were deemed to be too theologically liberal for mainline Protestant Christianity. And over the course of the 1950s, both churches slowly came together to talk about forming a merger. People argued both for and against it, but it eventually went through, forming the Unitarian Universalist Association in 1961. There were, however, other places that came together before then. The youth groups came together in the 1950s. And some small churches, like this one we're in today, came together beforehand. If you look closely at our name, we aren't the Unitarian Universalist Church of Haverhill. We're the Universalist Unitarian Church of Haverhill. That's because in 1950, when these two churches came together, it was the Universalists who were the stronger church. It was the Universalists who built the building that we're sitting in today. So the question I had was what was happening at First Parish Unitarian that made them need to merge with the Universalists at all? Well, the answer I got was simple. It was money and attendance. Back in the early 20th century, there was a small collection of people who made up the Unitarian Church, 
about 20 families. In 1902, there was a movement to shut the church down. And the American Unitarian Association came in and basically begged Haverhill to stay open, pleading with them to please try this new minister, freshly ordained. He's a great guy, trust me. And he stayed here for nine years. And it was in 1912 that he decided to leave, throwing First Parish again into chaos, trying to figure out whether to merge, whether to close, or whether to call a new minister and keep going. What made this debate in 1913 stick out to me, what made me decide to write my paper on it, were the notes taken in the parish books. Typically, it would say that a debate happened, and here's the result, and then we would turn the page and get on with it. But this one was different. This was 25 pages of handwritten notes detailing what each person said, what their name was, what position they had, where they came from. It, it was really amazing. These notes detailed the different uh, factions in the church, the different opinions they had, and even some quite interesting thoughts about the Universalists that were quite shocking to me. <laughs> so it is important to note that the movement to shut the church down in 1913 ended quite quickly when the first Universalist Church of Haverhill extended an invitation to have them merge. That's right, there was an opportunity for them to merge together back in 1913. I didn't know that. And it's not as odd as it sounds. Merged and federated churches back then were quite common. What was odd, at least to my eyes though, were the positions taken by people in First Parish and the national organization. Both high-ranking members of the First Parish Unitarian Church and the national body, including the president himself, argued that First Parish should merge with First Universalist. This meant that the people who knew the budget best the people who most likely were the most realistic about the church's financial stability felt that merging would be the best way to maintain First Parish as an organization. What made this even odder, though, to me, was the reaction from some people towards this movement to merge the churches. The reactions were defensive, to say the least, one more positive reaction claimed that a new spring had sprung within the church and that it was going to become revitalized very soon. After that comment, they don't stay positive. Some threw attacks at those who wanted to merge, essentially claiming that they weren't Unitarian enough. One man even went so far as to claim that those who wanted to keep this church going should stay, and those who wanted to merge should just leave and let those who wanted to keep this church alone to keep it going. Those are some pretty harsh words for a Christian context. The most interesting words to my ears were spoken by two very emotionally charged men in particular. They were very conflicted about merging with the Universalists. 
First, there were comments about how the Universalists viewed the Unitarians as heretics and how they hated them. The thought that Jesus was not God was a pretty bold statement at the time for anyone, and many traditional Christians viewed this as heretical. Universalists had a higher view of Jesus, and so it wouldn't have been uncommon. These comments made by these two men made the church go so far as to write a letter to First Unitarian Church in Lynn to find out about their relationship with the Universalists. These two men also asked how those people, meaning the Universalists, just wanted the Unitarian money and the Unitarian property. They felt that the Universalists had no desire to actually welcome them. It was just a scam to get their wealth. This was said even though the Universalist budget was two to three times the size of First Parish. It was essentially being asked if members of First Parish Unitarian wanted to stoop down to join the Universalists. It is important to note that I did not view Universalist records in such detail, and so I can't say what the other half of the conversation was saying. I only have the Unitarian side of this conversation. However, nationally, Unitarians were viewed as educated and wealthier. The history of the church was status and reason. The Universalists were viewed as less educated and more manual laborers. Their church was a church of salvation and faith. For the Unitarians to avoid merging with the Universalists for these reasons, the reasons of these two emotionally charged men, for me is pretty open classism. And this is all written plainly in the books, names and exactly what they said. With this amount of pressure happening in First Parish, when it came to a vote, they shot down the merger 15 to 5 and decided to remain an organization self-standing, and they called a new minister. Those who wanted the merger were disappointed, and some were even afraid. One supporter of the merger was so upset that he even went to the local papers to talk about it. He told the local paper about what a bad decision had been made. He told the local paper that it was inevitable that First Parish Unitarian and First Universalist would merge. And he told them about his displeasure, too. To think, though, that somebody was so angry about this that they actually went to the paper. Imagine if that happened today. Granted, I, I'm even more shocked that the paper printed it. I mean, either churches were much more important back then, or that news cycle was very slow. Regardless, I also have to admit that it's interesting that the fellow who went to the newspaper, who before this vote was a prominent member of the Board of Trustees, who held offices, slowly but surely faded away till his name dropped out of everything altogether. So to finish this story of the merger between these two churches, a new minister was called in 1913, and he stayed for about 11 years, and then a new minister was called again. And two or three years later, uh, First Parish realized the pickle they were in. 
and they were left with a choice to close, merge, or keep going. Except this time, they chose a fourth option. They decided to sell the property, not merge with anyone, including First Universalist, who re-extended an offer to come together, and they decided to rent spaces, to have worship services. For the next 24 years, they rented spaces periodically and had public worship services. These families, after 1926, inherited an organization that had three times in 25 years had to vote on closing, merging, or remaining an organization. And then they remained steadfast, keeping this organization alive and going for over two decades without a building. And it wasn't until after World War II that these two churches started to talk to each other. And it wasn't until 1950 that they decided to come together as a federated church, the church we have today. So this is where I think of the Protestant theologian Paul Tillich. Everything, he says, is stuck between freedom and destiny. On the one hand, freedom gives us the ability to freely choose between the options we have been given. On the other hand, our choices are limited by our destiny. Look at this beautiful building. Tillich would say that it was our destiny to have this building, and that it is our freedom to choose to take care of it, to sell it, or to let it languish. Many of us had the freedom to search for a new religious community, and destiny made it so that way this church was an option for us to come to, something some don't have simply because of where they're living. So looking at this story from 1913, can we see destiny at work today in both our church and in the wider society based on the choices our ancestors made? Can we see classism periodically picking up its head? Can we see this wonderful and amazing pride and tenacity that these people showed in their organizations? Can we see how the early 20th century church is continuing to influence this group of people here gathered today? So what next? So this is where freedom comes in. We have the freedom to make a choice based on the options our destiny has left us with. We can choose to reject the classism of our forebears. At the same time, we can choose to maintain their beautiful and amazing dedication to this church. I believe that humanity is both beautiful and flawed. And because of this, when I look to those people who had the courage to keep this place going, I can also admit their imperfections and reject their classism. In spite of the bad parts to this story, it needs to be told. Those lessons are too great to let languish in the dusty books of a dusty archive. Our second source states that we draw inspiration 
from words and deeds of prophetic people. So those who came before me are my prophets, and, there were, and from their words and deeds, I have learned to be more sympathetic to the cries of classism and more willing to dedicate my life as one of devotion to my community. These are our stories. Let us own them for their good and their bad. Kathleen McTeague's words remind us of this when she says, in the struggles we choose for ourselves, in the ways we move forward in our lives and bring our world forward with us, it is right to remember the names of those who gave us strength in this choice of living. It is right to name the power of hard lives well lived. So it is right to remember the names of those who partook in the debate of 1913, those of Jesse Harding, Carl Brackett, Arthur Chase, Frederick O'Raymond, and all the others who acted in however they felt would best continue this church. McTeague reminds us that we share the same history as those who lived before. We are part of the same motion. She also reminds us that they too were strengthened by what had come before. Those people remembered what First Parish was like when it was in its heyday. They remembered the good that this church did for its members and for its wider community. And that knowledge pushed these people to try to keep a church stable and productive because to continue using McTeague's words. They, too, were drawn on by the vision of what might come to be. While we may not be proud of all the actions committed by those who came before us, McTeague reminds us that they are still with us. The lives they lived hold us steady. Their words remind us and call us back to ourselves. This calling us back to ourselves does not have to be an affirmation of everything that our forebears did. I believe that it's possible to denounce the classism while also affirming their dedication. It is possible to see how their courage and love evokes our own. So as we go forth from here today, let us take seriously McTeague's calling to recognize that we, the living, carry them with us. We are their voices, their hands, and their hearts. And let us remember that this happens whether we know it or not. Because of their choices, we have been put where we are today. We can choose to deny this or we can choose to accept this. We can choose to recognize them as beautiful human beings and flawed, courageous and cowardly. And so from this point, we can choose where we go. But no matter the destination, we take them with us and with them choose the deeper path of living. Amen.